Good morning, Cross Point family. Welcome to this morning's worship service experience. I'm so glad that you've joined us, and I'm looking forward to this message. You know, a lot of things are going on around us that are difficult to watch, difficult to process even, and comprehend, and certainly very difficult to try to figure out. There's a lot of unrest, discontentment, uh, violence, and uh, a lot of desire for things to be made right, of course. This morning, what I want to do is I want to talk about contentment. The title of this morning's message is Settling for the Best. Settling for the Best. And I did that on purpose. It's a little bit of an ambiguous title. Uh, it almost seems like to settle for the best isn't really settling. So I want us to just dive in to the word in the word and just find out what God has for us when it comes to being content and learning to settle for the best. Of course, the best is God. I have a key verse that I want to share with you. It's John 10, 10. The Lord Jesus Christ speaking here says something very interesting as everything he said was, of course, interesting and important. But he, he tells us, he says, the thief does not come except to steal, kill and destroy. I have come that his sheep may have life and that they may have it more abundantly. This idea that our Lord Jesus Christ came not just to forgive us of our sins, which is awesome in itself, not just to give us eternal life, which is amazing, but even now, the remaining time that we have here on earth as children of God, he promises life and not just life, but he says more abundantly to the full in extreme that is the promise and that is God's desire for you and I to live a life that goes beyond normal expectations and I'm excited about that I, I don't even know what that means for my life but I want to trust God that whatever he has in mind for me is much better than whatever I can ever conjure up for myself to learn to trust him to learn to lean on Him and to follow Him is the key to have a successful, peaceful, joyful life, despite, of course, the circumstances that surround us. So keep that in mind. He has come to give us life and that more abundantly. The main point of this morning's message is thus. Learning to accept and live by the reality that God is the best that there is for us in every aspect of our lives, brings Him glory. Now, we might feel like, oh, isn't that obvious? And I would ask you, is it? Is it obvious and does it reflect itself in our lives that when we have found God, we realize that He is the best that there is for every aspect of our lives? And the question becomes, are we content with that? Are we content? Or... Are we always chasing after something else that we might feel might bring us a little more joy, a little more contentment, or a little more satisfaction? You know, I don't want to bring too much attention to this band, but there's a certain band that in 1965 came up with a very popular song that happens to be still very popular now. And it talks about, I can't get no, you know the rest, satisfaction. But I, I bid you, and the reason why I dare bring it up in a sermon 
is that that is the reality for anybody and everyone who does not have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. See, we all have a gap in our hearts, in our souls. And this gap, this void, can only be filled by God himself. And anything other than that is idolatry, or it is a a futile exercise in trying to find fulfillment or satisfaction outside of God. The Christian is so blessed. The Christian is the only person that can truly find complete satisfaction here on earth, while on earth. And I have to say this again, despite our surrounding circumstances, personal, relational, financial, health-wise, in our society, it doesn't matter. In Christ, we can find complete satisfaction. Now, simple, but not easy. And so I hope that this morning's message could be uh, both convicting and encouraging and insightful as to how it is that we can attain this satisfaction when we learn to lean and trust in our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, who ultimately is the best we can ever have for every aspect of our lives. So keep that in mind. You know, um, so the question is, are, have you found satisfaction? Are you content? Or are you still searching for something more? You know, God says, I am your portion. I am your great reward. And we have to be careful with that. You know, even when we think about heaven, perhaps, some of us might think, yeah, you know, when we get to heaven, there's going to be a street or streets of gold. And like, if that's a big deal, that's not a big deal. I'm not looking forward to the street of gold or the streets of gold and all this amazing stuff. That, that's, that's pretty cool. But until we learn that Jesus is our reward, our great pearl of great worth, our treasure, not what he can give us, but him himself is our reward. And he is the best for us. So I, I, you know, invite you to to thoughtfully consider what we're about to explore here in God's Word, um, to really look at what kind of applications can we put in place in our lives to start moving more towards this idea of finding satisfaction and being content with the best who is God Himself in our lives. You know, the Bible is full of examples, full of examples of people and even nations, individuals that were always looking for something more. You start off, you know, chronologically, I believe Lucifer would be the first example. An angel, an archangel in heaven, close to the throne of God. And that wasn't enough. In his heart, he found this desire to be more than God, to establish his throne above God's and he was kicked out of heaven. And then you have Adam and Eve, our parents, from which one race comes, and that's all of humanity. We have our parents, Adam and Eve. God tells them, first he sets them in this beautiful uh, garden, paradise, and he says, hey, you're going to get hungry, so go ahead and eat of every fruit, of any fruit, of all the trees that you find here, except one. You can have it all except just one. Stay off of this one. And what happened? Of course, they disobey, they rebel, and they eat of the forbidden fruit. 
from there you have example after example of people that were just not able to be content with the best. You have people like David, uh, a hero of mine in many ways, and I'm sure of yours, who, though he had many wives, when he saw Bathsheba, he desired her and took her from Uriah and committed this great sin against God. Not satisfied with what he had. With what he had. In the New Testament, I'll just jump over to the New Testament because I know I'm going to run out of time. In the New Testament, you have people like the parable of the rich fool whose land yields a great crop and, and instead of sharing it or, or doing something good with it, he says, I know what I'm going to do. I'm going to tear down my barns and build bigger warehouses and store everything. And then God says, you fool, tonight your soul will be required of you. Or the other uh, rich young ruler, as we know him by, who comes to the Lord, possibly sincere in wanting to know what he can do to get to heaven, whatever his mind, whatever in his mind that meant. And the Lord says, well, follow the commandments. And he says, which ones? I've, I've, I've followed them all, all of my life. Yeah, right. And then the Lord looks at him, and knowing his financial situation, the Lord tells this rich young man, he says, okay. Go ahead, go, sell everything, give it to the poor, come follow me. And this rich young ruler uh, puts his head down and walks away from the Lord. He walked away from the best because he wouldn't part ways with his money. Example after example of people that were just unable to find satisfaction in the best. Now, beloved, you know, there's a reason why there's all these examples in the Bible, and that is to teach us. And why would the Holy Spirit choose to give us all these examples of people that never found satisfaction in the best? The answer would be because you and I have that same idolatrous heart that even though we experience a relationship with Jesus Christ, our Lord, the best, we will always have a tendency to want to run back to other things that give us temporary fulfillment and satisfaction. Isn't that weird? Isn't that strange that having the best, there is still something in us that desires to go after earthly, mundane, temporal, physical things that don't compare to the best. And yet, there we are. It's amazing. And we have to be careful with that. And we have to be proactive in making sure we understand who God is and, and continue to know Him. Not only is salvation and eternal life found in knowing God, as we read in John 17, 3, but, but a life of fulfillment and joy and satisfaction is also found in Him. He has come to give us life and that more abundant. And we have to be proactive in pursuing that so that we can learn to be content having the best. We'll talk a little bit more about some of these individuals. And I'll just mention Judas, one of the 12 disciples that saw Jesus, lived with Jesus, learned from Jesus, heard Jesus, saw the miracles, and yet that wasn't enough. He betrayed him and sold him for 30 pieces of silver. You and I have to guard our heart. We have to be careful with that because that is in us. Take a look at your life. And, and obviously preparing for this message is so convicting. As we look at our lives and realize and ask ourselves, why am I chasing after this? 
Why am I chasing after that? And if we're not careful, we're going to find ourselves for the rest of our lives chasing after something else that in our mind, sometimes even unconsciously, we think will bring us some sort of greater level of satisfaction outside of Christ. And that's just not the case. So let's be encouraged. Let's, let's really uh, just dive in here. I'm going to use Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 and 2 to uh, bring out three points that I believe will help us in uh, learning to settle for the best. There's three things that, that will help us. There's a lot more, of course, but I've, I've chosen this portion, Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, to draw out three lessons that we can use for us to learn how to settle for the best. So let's take a look. Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. The title of this morning's message, Settling for the Best. Learning to be content with God. Verse 12, sorry, chapter 12, verse 1 in Hebrews. For our first point here, it says, Therefore, we also, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, here's the first point, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us. And I'll stop right there at the beginning of verse 1. There's our first point. If we're going to learn to be content with God, with the best, the first thing we must do is we need to dispose of distractions. You need to get rid of distractions. Every point's going to start with the letter D for you that are taking notes. We need to learn to get rid of distractions. Now, 21st century, talk about living in a culture, and I'm sure every culture in, every, in a different way uh, had to deal with the same type of issues. But you and I are bombarded with distractions, with things that once again demand our attention if we're not careful. But we need to get rid of those. It says, since we are surrounded by such great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us. Here, the author, I was just about to say, Paul, the author of Hebrews is saying, look at chapter 11 and look at all these heroes of the faith. Let's use them as examples as we learn to run our individual race and our race in general as Christians as God's family. And the first thing he says, lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us. That's a warning, beloved. It's a warning to believers. He says, there are things in your life that weigh you down, that slow you down, that distract you from running your race the way God wants us to. And what does he say? You need to lay those aside. Get rid of those distractions. And then he says, there are things that, that are weights, possibly things that not, aren't necessarily sinful. They're just things that take up our time. You know, it's amazing when you consider time and, you know, how time lapses and time doesn't wait for anyone and you and I just get older and older and older. But he says, there are things that are going to slow you down and they may not be sinful, you know, obviously horrible or bad things, but nonetheless, there are things that slow you down for the most important thing. And the most important thing is enjoying our relationship with God, learning to love Him, 
trust Him, and serve Him. These are things that, you know, and, and it's, it's up to us individually to take inventory of our lives and say, where am I spending the time that God has given me? You know, you may not do this, but you may sit down in front of a TV and watch a movie. Two, three hours, just like that, gone. You may sit down in front of a TV as well, or go to a sporting event. Two, three, four hours, gone, just like that. Your favorite TV show or, you know, sports, not a bad thing. But you go to practice, two, three, four hours. In my case, my, my coach had to kick me out of the gym. He needed to go home to his family and kids. He couldn't, I couldn't be in the gym long enough. Uh, and, and it just took a lot of time. Sports, entertainment, things that we do for self-gratification, things that may not necessarily be bad things, but they take our attention from the main thing, the best thing. And if we're not careful, we end up settling for those instead of learning to enjoy a personal, intimate, close relationship with our Creator and Savior. So he says, uh, so those are, those are weights that just slow us down. But then he also says, and the sin which so easily ensnares us. We talked about this last time, how sin takes you farther than you're willing to go and keeps you longer than you're willing to stay and always costs you more than what you're willing to pay. He says, be careful with that. Get rid of that. Discard the sin that so easily ensnares us. Are, are you listening to that? Sin will easily ensnare you, capture you, hold on to you and bring you down. When I say let's take inventory of our lives, let's really be sincere with God. And maybe you need uh, a mentor, which I highly recommend that you have a mentor in which you can process and talk these things out with. Because we all have things that we're struggling with. And God doesn't want you to struggle with those or try to deal with them on your own. If you need help, reach out for help. Contact us at crosspointchristianchurch.com. There are people that, that can help. Maybe just to listen. Maybe just to offer a word of advice. Maybe just a chance to open up the word and, and spend a little bit of time in fellowship in the word. All right. So, the weights that slow us down and the sin that so easily ensnares us. What do we need to do if we're going to learn to settle for the best? We need to dispose of those distractions. Just get rid of them. Now, don't allow temptations to linger on. And, and these, these could be good things. Um, you know, as I was meditating on this idea, uh, James chapter 1, verses 13 through 15 talks about sin and the process that, that sin goes through in order for it to produce ultimately death. And, and he says, let me read it to you. It's just right here, a couple pages up. He, uh, James 1, 13 through 15 says, let no one say when he is tempted, I am tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he himself tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when he is drawn away by his own desires and enticed. Then when the desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is full grown, brings forth death. Temptation itself, when we are tempted, is not a sin. But he says, when you are tempted, 
Don't you dare allow that temptation to linger on. Get rid of it. When those thoughts enter your mind of dissatisfaction or, or a willingness or a wanting to go and find satisfaction from something else, which is normal, you're always going to have those thoughts. Don't allow those thoughts to stay in your mind. Turn them over to the Lord and say, hey, Lord, hey, you take care of this one. But the, the word says that when we find ourselves in sin, it is after a process of having been tempted by our own desires. And then we allow these desires to linger on, to stick around instead of getting rid of them. And then eventually it ensnares us and we find ourselves in sin. And that sin brings forth death or separation, in our case as believers, not from our salvation, but from our communion and our fellowship with God. We must be careful with that. Now, talk about disposing distractions. I'm going to read Philippians 3, 7 through 11 and then move on because we're taking too long in this one point. But it's very important. If we don't get rid of distractions and we try to run the race that God has set before us, you're not going to be able to. We got to take care of this first. As a foundation, in order for us to be able to run the race, we must get rid of distractions. Philippians 3, verse 7. The Apostle Paul, contrary to all of these negative examples of not finding satisfaction in God, Paul was one that we could use as an example of somebody who did find satisfaction in his relationship with God. And of course, not perfectly, but oh boy. If we can get close to his level of satisfaction in our relationship with God, we're on the right track. Philippians 3, verses 7 through 11, listen to what he says. And many of these temptations, many of these things that we linger on to could be successes, past success or accomplishments that we're still hanging on to. Oh boy, when I was a captain of the volleyball team, those were some good times indeed. But those are over. <laughs> in many ways, that was a big waste of time. I enjoyed it, and I'm sure God taught me a lot through that, but we, we can't hang on to the past, whether it's hurts or whether it's successes or accomplishments. We need to move forward, and, and that's going to be part of the next point. So let me tell you what Philippians chapter 3, verses 7 through 11 says. This is to what Paul says. He says, but what things were gained to me, these I have counted loss for Christ. Yet indeed I also count all things lost for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish, that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having my own righteousness, which is from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ Jesus, the righteousness which is from God by faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his suffering being conformed unto his death. Paul says, I was, I was, a, I was a bad man in a good way. Like there's, there's places in the Bible where he, he almost brags about what kind of a person he was prior to knowing Christ. He was an outstanding individual. And he says, all of that, for the sake of knowing Christ more intimately, I count all of that as trash. None of that in my past which other people admired about him, and no doubt he admired about himself, all of that, he says, means nothing in comparison to my relationship with Jesus Christ and the power of his resurrection. That's what I want. He wants to be conformed to be like Christ, and he values that above everything else. That's where we need to be, to find satisfaction and learn to settle, to be content 
but we'll be content with the best. That's the first point. If we're going to settle to learn to, if we're going to settle for the best, we first must dispose of distractions. And second of all, we need to reject dissatisfaction and choose contentment. We need to reject dissatisfaction. Look at what it says in Hebrews once again, chapter 12 and the second part of verse 1. Hebrews 12, verse 1. I'll read it again, but we're going to focus on the last part of this verse. Therefore, we also, since we are surrounded by such great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us. And point number two, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. We need to reject dissatisfaction and choose contentment. What do I mean by that? The author here says, dispose distractions and run with endurance the race that is set before us. Beloved, as a church, we have a race to run. But as individuals, as each children of, as, as an individual child of God, you have a individual race to run. God has a race for you to run. And your race is different from my race. And it's different from everybody else's race. See, God is personally interested in you. He knows you not just by name, but he knows you intimately. He knows every single thing about you. And he has a specific purpose for your life. And that's part of the race that has been set before you. Discontentment comes when we want to run somebody else's race. When we feel that somebody else's race is better than ours. When we look around and say, boy, there's a lot of hills on my race and I have to go uphill. That person over there seems to be running downhill all the time. Why can't I have that person's race? You know, a while back, I got all brave. I, I, I gave in to uh, peer pressure. A couple of guys here from our church were uh, Spartan runners. You know who I'm talking about. You know, running Spartan races. If you don't know what that is, they're a lot of fun, but they're also very difficult. So here they were, hey, Mike, let's go to a Spartan race. I'm thinking like, yeah, you know, I used to be an athlete. That shouldn't be too hard. What do they look like? And it's interesting because Spartan races, are, are they vary. There's like these ultra marathon, super race, you know, where you run for like three months. At a, I don't know how long it is. But they're really long marathon-like races with obstacles. And I'm like, no, I don't want to do that one. And there's some in the, on the, in the desert. There's some in, you know, by lakes and what have you. And then they, they, they say, hey, there's a Spartan run by a lake. And it's a sprint. I'm like, oh, I prefer sprint type of runs. I don't like marathons. Never been much of a runner. They're like, yeah, it's only three miles or or something to that effect. I thought three miles, hey, doesn't sound too bad. Worst experience ever. Hills. They forgot to tell me about the hills. The obstacles were okay. They're still difficult. But, boy, the first, I don't know, mile was uphill. And I, I started thinking, like, why am I doing this? It's hot. I had to pay to run that race, you know? And I see everybody passing me by, men, women, children. Long story short, I cramp up like never before in my life. I have to pretty much walk the rest of the race. It was embarrassing. It was a failure on my part, but I learned something. And I want to share that with you. You have an individual race, and you don't get to choose it. And to a certain extent, you don't get to choose your race. I think you get to choose a lot about what you do and how you do your race, 
but you don't get to choose your race. Like you, you didn't choose what day to be born or you didn't choose who your parents were going to be. You didn't choose what kind of financial situation you were going to be born into and social economic status and all that stuff. A lot of things we did not choose for ourselves. It was set before us. And discontentment comes when, when this, you know, this thing that we have inside of us, this idea that, you know, the grass is always greener on the other side. And if we're not careful, that's an attitude that we take in and we never find satisfaction in our, in our circumstances. And, and more importantly, we may not find satisfaction in our relationship with God who is the best for us. Keep that in mind. God has chosen a race for you. We need to learn to embrace that and see what it is that God wants for us to learn and to do throughout this race. And don't worry about everybody else's race. Well, I don't look like that person. I wish I was, you know, shorter or taller or darker or more light skin. And I wish I would have colored. I mean, you go down the line and if you're not careful, you could be dissatisfied with everything. Then I will tell you stories about my years of dissatisfaction. Not that I'm, you know, professing to be completely satisfied now. I'm a work in progress. But I remember some attitudes in my life that were just, you know, sinful for one, but they were just sad. Thinking that other people had it better than me growing up. Um, so just keep that in mind. We don't have a lot of time to develop that, but we need to learn to reject dissatisfaction and instead we need to choose contentment. I want to share a quick story. It's found in, in 2 Kings chapter 5. And that story probably rings a bell, that portion. It's the portion of Naaman being healed of his leprosy. But I don't want to talk about Naaman. I don't even want to talk about Elijah. Uh, I want to talk about Elijah's servant, Gehazi. That's exactly how you pronounce it, by the way. Gehazi. He was Elijah's servant. And really quick, I'll just say in a couple of minutes, but uh, Naaman, uh, high, he was the commander of the Assyrian army. This, guy's, this guy was a top man, and, but he was leprous. He had leprosy. And he finds out that there, there's somebody in, in Israel that might be able to cure his leprosy uh, who was told by his little girl. We talked about this a couple of months ago. And he asks uh, permission from his king. His king grants him permission, writes him a letter to the king of Israel, you know, there's a, there's a man of God there that can hear my leprosy, heal my leprosy. So he goes over, he uh, goes with the big company, he takes these treasures with him to give to the person that's about to heal him from his leprosy. And long story short, I'll skip over some details. I'll ask you to read 2 Kings chapter 5. Read the whole story, it's amazing. But here's the deal. Elijah ends up being used by God to, and slightly, right, slightly, uh, is used by God to heal Naaman. So Naaman, long story short, is healed from his leprosy. And out of gratitude, Naaman says to Elijah through his servant Gehazi, he says, tell your servant, you know, I brought these gifts, these treasures, chains of fancy clothes, gold, silver, all these things that, that were valuable. And when, when Naaman was healed, he wants to give it to Elijah. And Elijah tells his servant Gehazi, no, we're not about to accept anything from this man. God healed him. He's good. Let him be. And Gehazi cannot believe what's happening. In his heart, he has this, this uh, covetousness, this desire for the things that Naaman wants to give them. 
And when Elijah says we're not going to accept anything from him, uh, Naaman and his company leave with the, with the goods. And then once things kind of settle down, Gehazi finds it in his heart and he says, I'm going to go back over there and I'm going to get some of that stuff that my master Elijah doesn't want to accept. Because it's crazy. Why doesn't he want to accept it in the first place? He brought it for us and he's rejecting it. Well, I'm going to, take, I'm going to get some of that. And he chases after the chariots and he lies to, to Nathan. Nathan sees Gehazi come and says, hey, what's up? What's going on? Gehazi says, uh, hey, you know uh, some people came to town and we have nothing to give them. Can we take just a little bit of the stuff that you brought for us? And Nathan gives him more than what he asked for. Gehazi takes the goods. Listen to this. He takes the minimal goods from Nathan. From, uh, uh, who's the guy that got uh, healed? Naaman. Uh, he takes the, the minimal things from Naaman. He goes back and tries to hide it from Elijah. Elijah comes in and says, Gehazi, where did you go? And Gehazi says, I didn't go anywhere. What are you talking about? He says, didn't my heart go with you when you went back and chasing after that chariot? And why did you do that? Didn't I say we're not going to get anything from him? But because you've done this, listen to this, because you went back and you settled for a couple of garments and a couple of, little bit of change. He says, Naaman's leprosy is going to be on you for the rest of your life. And Gehazi ends up with Naaman's leprosy because Gehazi could not be content with seeing God at work the way God wanted to do things. To me, that's such a sad story. It's kind of embedded in, in Naaman's story because it's such an awesome story, you know, that, Elijah, that God would heal Naaman. But Gehazi, I've always found so interesting that this man settled. He saw God's power, and instead of focusing on that and giving God glory, he chose to follow his heart and his greed to settle for for some clothes, as fancy as it may have been. That doesn't compare to our relationship with God. And in doing that as a punishment from God, he ends up with Naaman's leprosy. Beloved, I wonder how many of us are settling for so little in this life. And you might think, yeah, Mike, but look at my car. Have you seen my house? Check out these fancy clothes. Look at my bank account. I got to tell you, in case nobody's ever said anything to you about this, None of that means anything. Jesus said, what good is it for a person to gain the whole world and lose his soul? And none of us should be thinking like, why can't we have both? Now, I'm not saying we all have to be poor and not have any money in the bank. That's not what I'm saying. I'm talking about the attitude in our heart and the covetousness and our unwillingness to find satisfaction and contentment in the best thing, which is God, in our relationship with him. You know, God says, seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and everything else will be taken care of. And I have so many examples, but I don't have the time to tell you. But look at what Solomon, as a young man, taking over the throne, God says, ask whatever you want. And he says, I want wisdom to to lead your people. And God says, I love you for that. I'm going to give you wisdom and I'm going to give you riches and I'm going to give you everything else. That's the kind of God that we want, that we have. That's the kind of God that we should want. And be satisfied with. You know, he doesn't just take us in as children and says, okay, now you're going to be poor and miserable for the rest of your life. He says, welcome to my family. And I am willing to share everything that I am and everything that I have with you. But we have to believe him. We have to trust that. Which is my third point. If we are going to learn to settle for the best, we have to not only dispose of distractions 
and reject dissatisfaction and choose contentment, but we also have to learn to depend on God. Depend on God. And I mentioned a couple of verses that have to do with that, right? You know, if we seek Him and His righteousness first, God promises to take care of us. Do you believe it? Are you willing to trust Him? He says that if we trust Him with all of our hearts and we don't lean on our own understanding, He will direct our paths. You don't have to worry about your life. You don't have to worry about anything, really. You can be grateful, trusting that God has your best in mind and His glory. That's how we find contentment and satisfaction in God. So we learn to depend on God. What does that mean? Hebrews 12, 2 says, Looking unto Jesus, focusing our eyes unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. Beloved, not only did God initiate the faith that you have, but he also promises to complete it, to perfect it. And that's going to be done when we're called home or when Jesus comes back for his church. In the meantime, we're in this process of sanctification, of growth, getting close to God, knowing him better. But he says, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him, listen to this, endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. He says, run your race, get rid of the distractions, run your race, don't focus on anybody else's race, run your race, and as you're running your race and you're getting rid of distractions, focus your eyes on God. Learn to trust and depend on him because he is the author and the finisher of your faith. Philippians 1.6 says almost the exact same thing. So let me read that to you because, again, this is the Apostle Paul who, perhaps in my estimation, would be the person that, that was most, that, that would best personify or illustrate somebody who, who was content in pursuing God all of his life. Verse 6 says, being confident of this very thing, being confident, trusting, learning to depend on God of this very thing, that he who has begun a good work in you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. God is in the business of calling you unto himself, starting this work of faith in you, but not leaving you as you are, but perfecting, completing that work of faith in your life. And as a Christian, as a follower of Christ, we need to be growing. We need to be pursuing Him. We need to be getting closer to Him and growing in Christ's likeness. And as we do that, we learn to be more content and satisfied in the best thing, which is God and our relationship with Him through Jesus Christ. There's more that we can say, but our time is up. I know you're thinking like, boy, felt like five minutes. I hope that's what you're saying. If not, let's uh, uh, really consider God's word. Let's, let's, don't let this, you know, my, my hope and my prayer is that I don't mean to just come and, and spill out words and, and you know, or, or sound anything. I really, my desire is that as you listen to a message like this, that you will be convicted and encouraged, motivated towards godliness, towards Christ-likeness. And learning to be content with the best is one way to do that. If not, we're going to, again, continue chasing after things. And, beloved, 
Let me tell you, I believe that we all do that. And so there's a lot of application here. If we're willing to be sincere, be in prayer, get on our knees and say, Lord, reveal to me the things that I need to see and correct in my life. Where am I, where am I finding temporary satisfaction and contentment outside of you? And, and help me get rid of those things because those things don't please you and they don't help me and they don't bless others. Settling for the best. When we find a relationship with God, there is still a danger of us pursuing things that don't please Him and don't satisfy Him as He does. So let's be careful with that. Let's be encouraged that, as, as Paul says in Philippians 4.13, we can do all things through Christ that strengthens me. If what we talked about today sounds convicting or difficult, I would say I'm right there with you. But let's go back to the Word and, and realize that the Holy Spirit in us and, and, and Christ's power in us, God's power in us, we can do these things and get them done. May the Lord bless His Word. The Lord bless you, beloved. Um, I want to take communion as we wrap up this message. And, and I want to say a couple of things. We don't want this taking of communion to be just this ritual that we stack on at the end of the service. It is much more than just a symbolic remembrance of what the Lord has done. It is, it is our ability to, you know, unfortunately because of COVID-19, we're not able to do this together, but I'm, I'm praying that you would take the time and be prepared to take communion at home with your family, your loved ones, whoever is there watching this with you. And as we celebrate what Jesus has done for us at the cross. Though it was a terrible thing that God in the flesh would be crucified. And I love what we read in Hebrews 12 too. Despising the shame. You know, you've heard me say this before. Jesus died a painful and shameful death. And that talks about him not just taking the penalty of our sin, but part of that penalty was a shame that is associated with our sin. The symbolic nakedness that Jesus covered from Adam and Eve after they fell. And so I want us to really consider that. I want us to be in prayer, meditating that as we take part of communion, we really consider this idea that we mentioned that we need to dispose of those distractions, especially the sin that so easily ensnares us. If there is sin in your life, we need to confess it. We need to repent from that. We need to learn to hate our sin and view our sin the way God sees our sin. And it's never okay to be in sin. And so we come to this humbly. We come to this with, with gratitude, knowing that Jesus says that God is faithful. And if we confess our sins, He's faithful and just to forgive us of all our sins and to cleanse us of all unrighteousness, unrighteousness that we may be able to have this fellowship with God and find the strength to run the race that God has set before us. Be in prayer. Um, be in constant confession of your sin and express your gratitude for what Jesus has done for us at the cross. If you're able to join me as we take communion, I'm going to read what I usually read in Corinthians chapter 11. He says, For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the same night in which he was betrayed took bread 
And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, Take and eat. This is my body which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same manner, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. This do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Our Lord Jesus gave his life for us that we would live our lives for him. Gracious Father, thank you for this wonderful opportunity to be in your word. Uh, We thank you for your goodness and your grace. We thank you for the race that you have set before us. Help us to be content with that race. Help us to do well in this race. Help us to dispose of the things that distract us, Father, and help us to learn to depend evermore on you. I thank you for everyone who is listening to this message. I pray for your blessing and protection. I pray in Jesus' wonderful name. Amen. God bless you, beloved. Till next time.